There's a new king in streaming video. Well, kind of. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Dylan Lewis, sitting in for Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Premium Analyst Maria Gallagher. Maria, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Maria, uh, Disney reported earnings after the bell Wednesday, and the results were good news for people who like good news. Uh, revenue is up 26% year over year. Operating profit jumped 50% year over year, thanks in large part to a triumphant return for the company's theme park division. If there were any questions about people's desire to get back out into the world, I think Disney's parks experience and products division says it all. 70% year-over-year growth, and we're seeing that segment come in above pre-pandemic levels. It was a great quarter for them. So, like you said, revenue was up 26% to about $21 billion. Their media and entertainment segment is up about 11%. Parks, experiences, and products up, like you said, 70%. And what's interesting there is their guest spending grew. So, their average per capita ticket revenue was up, as well as the ha there was higher average daily hotel room rates. And this is the first quarter, or one of the first quarters, where cruises operated fully throughout the whole quarter. So, you saw a return in cruises as well. So, I think it's really interesting to see the comeback of the parks business because now they've always had a pretty holistic ecosystem, but now the holistic ecosystem is really up and running in a way it hasn't been able to really run for the past couple of years. Yeah, I think we're finally seeing a business that is, uh, to quote one of our colleagues, firing on all cylinders, right? It's it's not that certain parts of Disney's business have to carry along these other struggling parts due to the pandemic. Um, we're, we're kind of seeing these results materialize because every piece of this business is moving and starting to grow in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at things like Disney Plus, Disney Plus now has on its own 152 million total subscribers. In the US, that was up 17%. ESPN Plus has about 22.8 million, and Hulu has about 46.2 million. So they have surpassed Netflix in their total users of 221 million. Um, and what is also really interesting about this is that their average monthly revenue per paid subscriber, Hulu's is by far the highest with $87 for the live TV bundle and about $13 just for video. Um, and so then Disney Plus comes in about $6, ESPN about 4 to $5. So I do think also with with Disney, it's firing on all cylinders, even within all of their segments. So you see strength from each of their video streaming platforms, as well as strength throughout their whole ecosystem. Yeah, it's interesting to see because they are, in the grand scheme of streaming, a relatively new entrant, despite being the size that they are and the the company that they are. Uh, in addition to them, you know, putting the crown on and saying, "Hey, we're the new king of streaming," looking at our numbers, uh, we also got an update on the company's offerings in streaming and specifically the way that they're pricing uh, some of their subscription tiers. Yeah, so I think also what's interesting is. Like you're saying, it's kind of newer, but it has so much strength because everyone knows Disney, right? And so they have this loyalty already baked in the way you see some of these newer streaming services trying to build out franchises. Disney has over 2,000 active patents compared to Netflix has about 400 patents. So we just see Disney, I think, is pretty unique in its capability to come in and have such strength so immediately. And so we are seeing a rate hike. Um, so we're seeing the ad free tier of Hulu is going to jump to $14.99. There's going to be a price hike for unbundled ESPN Plus. There's going to be um, more for Disney Plus as well. So there, we are seeing, as is pretty typical of a lot of the streaming services, more of the rate hikes 
coming in towards the end of 2022. I feel like pricing power has been one of the main focuses of the last six or so months. Uh, it's been something that we've kind of been looking at to businesses to say, like, do you, in an inflationary environment, have the ability to raise prices, maintain the relationship that you have with customers? We're seeing these prices come up, and I think to some extent we knew Disney priced low early so that they'd be able to bring a lot of subscribers on board. When you see where Disney's offerings are priced now, how do you think it stacks up, and where do you think the ceiling is for them in terms of pricing power? Do you feel like they have room to run? That's a great question, and I think it's kind of the million-dollar question, is how many people are going to get lost with these pr price hikes? And so, I do think that having those built-in franchises is going to be really good for them, whereas we see with Netflix, there isn't as much loyalty as kind of the rewatch shows. The, the only one that's really left on Netflix now is New Girl. Now, there's Seinfeld, but we saw Friends leave. We saw Parks and Rec leave. We saw The Office leave. Um, and so, I think Disney has a lot of advantage in that a lot of people already have loyalty to a lot of the options within Disney, so I think that it has more room to run. But I don't think that the ceiling is that high, because most people aren't just buying one service now. You have multiple services. So, if you're paying more than $15, $20 for a service, that's, I think, I think the t top is really between $15 and $20. And we're starting to see them hit that, even with some of their bundled options already. I know that there's going to be that streaming fatigue as people start to look at all the different things that they're paying for and figure out, okay, what am I actually using on, on, on a rolling basis? Uh, and that, I think, to some extent, is going to dictate uh, people's price sensitivities. Um, one of the other things I was kind of struck by, Maria, just looking at uh, the new offering and what they're thinking in terms of pricing and tiers, is uh, they announced that they had an ad-free experience moving up to $11 a month from its current price of $7.99. And that at $7.99, they are now going to be offering a lower ad-supported tier. Is this just basically the future of streaming? We're looking at cable, but kind of with more steps. Yeah, I think we've really come full circle. I remember when DVR started, and everyone was so excited to not have commercials. And then you had Netflix, which was even better. And now we're back to commercials. And so I think that's kind of an interesting thing to see that it really comes in a loop, and that advertising really pays. And so they're trying to see the value in that. And so I wonder how many people are just going to say, fine, I'll just keep watching commercials. I did it for most of my life. I guess it's coming back versus how many people are going to say, no, I don't want commercials. I'm going to pay up. But that means I'm probably going to have some streaming services on the chopping block. I'll only pay up for two services as opposed to saying, okay, fine, I'll have everything, but I'll have them all at the cheapest tier. I think if you're looking for an upside there, it's that you maybe have an opportunity to get up and go to the bathroom while you're watching TV. You don't have to hit pause uh, as you're streaming shows anymore, but I know some people are going to be a little disappointed about that. Um, Maria, there were a couple other earnings results that I wanted to touch on from this week, uh, in part just because I think there are some companies out there that are bellwethers for larger trends. And what we saw in these reports is kind of an interesting indication of the dynamics that we're seeing in those markets. Uh, the, the name that comes to mind to me first is Coinbase. Uh, when they reported earnings uh, earlier this month, we saw a 60% decline in revenue year over year and losses of $5 a share, uh, nearly double what the market had been expecting. Uh, we know, to some extent, this is really just a business that is going to move with crypto markets in general. You pick any of their major metrics, um, that is going to be driven by the performance of crypto and uh, generally interest and sentiment in crypto. Were there any numbers that jumped out to you uh, as something that was surprising in what was kind of a rough report or even worse than maybe the market was making it out to be? 
I mean, it was a really interesting report, and they did really go in a lot of depth. So I have to give them credit for that. So I think the first one is just the crypto market overall. It saw declines of over 1.3 trillion. We saw this echoed, obviously, in Coinbase results. So their trading volume was down about 30%. Their transaction revenue was down about 35%. Their net revenue was down 31%, but their operating expenses were up 8%. So you saw an operating expense of nearly $2 billion on $803 million in revenue. So obviously, they have to do some pretty intense management of expenses moving forward, and that's something that I think is really important for them. You saw they are obviously aware of that with an 18% employee reduction count in June. Um, something else that I thought was pretty interesting, though, is their trading volume breakdowns. So retailer per, retail investors are a much smaller percentage of their trading volume, but are a much higher percentage of their revenue. Revenue. So we see that institutions have a lot of volume, but they have a low fees, and ge- the retail customers generate more of those fees. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see, as we're facing a crypto winter, what those retail investors, how they back bounce back, and what what that looks like. And then the last thing that I noticed as well is that other crypto assets are about 47% of their trading volume. So a lot of users on the platform, they're not only going for Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin's about 31%, Ethereum's about 22%. But so those other crypto assets are larger chunk than I thought they would have been on this platform. So I also think that's going to be something that might change as people are looking to have some more stability in this very volatile market. You mentioned crypto winter, and if it's reassuring at all to folks that are holding shares of Coinbase, uh, in their shareholder letter, management wrote, it's never as good as it seems, and it's never as bad as it seems. Uh, And in their materials, they had charted out crypto's rise over the last decade plus, and noted that there were basically four cycles, as they see it, uh, with over 70% declines peak to trough each time. When we see times are good with this business, and there's a lot of interest and activity in the crypto space, this is a solidly profitable company. But we have to acknowledge it's cyclical and it's going to be at the whims of this larger market. What do you want to see from them when times aren't good to know that they're positioned to capitalize on these rises and runs that the overall market will go in? Yeah, I mean, I just think that highlights such the intense volatility and uncertainty with four pullbacks that were that massive over the past decade. So I think that that just kind of underscores the the volatility of the market overall. So. At the first iteration, there were kind of different exchanges that no longer exist. So, to be completely transparent, I fall a little bit more on the cryptical side of the crypto market. Um, but so, I would say that in times like this, obviously, cost cutting and focusing on trying to diversify their revenue streams so they aren't as tightly correlated with this volatility and trying to see some kind of momentum in terms of being sustainably profitable and not being as cyclical. What they, However they can manage that cyclicality is just really important, I think. And we've seen them have some initial signs of success there. They are trying to launch a subscription business and a subscription revenue stream that gets them a little bit away from more of the activity-based revenue and business model that they currently have. It's a small part of the overall pie, but I think if you see signs that that's continuing to grow and become an increasing piece of the pie for them, they're probably onto something there. Yeah, absolutely. They had a 44% growth in the subscription and services revenue. Um, and so they have, they talk about their highest priority opportunities are things like Coinbase Prime, the retail app, developer products, Web3. So they are definitely trying to do that diversification. But I wonder how many people are coming onto Coinbase for those diversification offerings and how many people are just coming to buy or sell Bitcoin or Ethereum. And I think that that's going to be that what we see over the next couple quarters, next couple of years, really the test for Coinbase. 
One of the other earnings results and, and kind of follow-on announcements after earnings that I wanted to focus on uh, was from SoftBank, the telecom-turned-massive tech investor. Uh, the company posted a record net loss of $24 billion, and this was largely driven by paper losses on investments in the public and private markets. The good and the bad of SoftBank is pretty well documented <laughs> over the last couple of years. We, we saw when WeWork was going through its massive debacle, this was a name that was very closely associated with it because they've been a major source of funding for WeWork. Um, there are a lot of other really big public and private names uh, that SoftBank has been associated with. I think, Maria, when we're seeing the results come in and we're seeing some of the follow-on news items after the earnings uh, that have come in, we have to start to question a little bit where this company is and what it's been doing over the last couple of years um, because we're starting to see these these drawdowns or these these paper losses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's kind of a signal of the investing philosophy of a lot of venture changing because really SoftBank came on the scene and it was so powerful. It had so much money. It kind of changed both the volume and the intensity with which you could do VC spending. And so seeing um, them kind of say, we're going to look at being really critical. We're not looking into invest anymore. We're going to look and they are um, they are selling it a lot of its sale of SoFi, Alibaba, T-Mobile. And it's also kind of interesting because Alibaba is the first investment that kind of put SoftBank on the map. Um, so I wonder what the next couple of quarters will look like in terms of them selling some of their stakes in companies. They own or partially own so many different names. They own part of Cameo, um, ByteDance, which owns TikTok, Dice, DD Grocery, Grocery, um, Ding Dong Fresh, which is another grocery delivery. All throughout the world, they own parts of Klarna. So I think it's kind of a signal of a new era in VC where we've seen for a very long time kind of pretty free-flowing money within the private market space. And I think that this is kind of a signal that they're working on being maybe a little more critical moving forward, which I think will be pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah. And you know, I think it's particularly interesting because we don't really get a lens into the private markets all that often. You know, we can, to some extent, get a sense of what's going on with some of their public stakes. And we saw that they had a very large position in Uber, and they liquidated that position recently, um, seemingly at a gain in order to raise some cash. Uh, but we don't necessarily get a look at the valuations of private companies all that often. And when I see them going and saying, you know what, um, we are going to wind down some of our position in our in our most fabled investment, Alibaba, uh, that really kind of put us on the map to raise tens of billions of dollars to shore up our cash position, it does make me think what, we're, what we've been seeing uh, from them with their private investments, we're probably going to start to see some haircuts. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that what we've seen also in the past couple, couple years, maybe past 10 years, is that companies are coming public so much later because there's so much money in the private market. So unicorns used to be things that you never saw, but now we're seeing unicorns all the time. And so I think that's also going to be interesting as I wonder if with this more frugal idea of VC, if we're going to see more companies go going public at an earlier stage, which is something that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. So that'll be pretty interesting for me to watch as well. Maria, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. To build more electric car batteries, the big auto manufacturers will have to get creative finding rare earth metals. Lycycle is a small cap battery recycler, hoping to meet the growing demand for lithium for electric cars. Nick Seipel caught up with Lycycle co-founder Tim Johnston to talk about his company's partnerships with major energy providers and its growth plans for the future.
Hey everybody, I'm Motley Fool, Senior Analyst Nick Seipel. I'm excited to be here today with Tim Johnston, co-founder and executive chairman of Lifecycle Holdings, a Canadian company working to become a global leader in battery recycling. Tim, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. So just to start, why'd you found this company? What's the opportunity you're going after today? Yeah, absolutely. So I came from the traditional world of mining lithium materials, and I was doing that for about uh, 10 years, working all over the world, helping companies develop different lithium assets. Uh, but it was clear that you know, whilst we were generating a lot of material to go into what is a very important part of this new economy that we're developing in terms of lithium-ion batteries, that there really wasn't a good way to recover these materials and return them back to the industry in a form that's suitable to go back into new batteries, new products. Uh, and so that was really the problem opportunity. I uh, felt that uh, with my co-founder, RJ Kocha, who is our CEO, that we had the right technical uh, background to understand how to solve this problem. Uh, we have some experience in technology development and, and business. And so we really saw that this was a, a great opportunity to develop and, and solve a, a problem that was really very important for the industry and, and to be frank, for, for the wider economy. Absolutely. And you see headlines pretty regularly today with electric vehicle manufacturers talking about uh, you know, supply constraints for some of the, those key commodities. So when you talk about recycling um, an electric vehicle battery or a lithium ion battery in general, how do you do that? How do you even start? So basically, we have a two-part process. Uh, we refer to this as the spoken hub model. Uh, it follows both the technology, but then also the business model. Uh, so the idea with our spokes are these are relatively small format uh, pre-processing plants, so where we accept all different forms of lithium-ion batteries. So you can think of everything from the smallest lithium-ion battery you might have at home, maybe from an AirPod or, or something like that, uh, all the way up to and including electric vehicle battery packs uh, and all the manufacturing scrap that's generated in the process of making these batteries uh, in the first place. Uh, these plants, as I said, a small footprint. We have a facility uh, in Canada where we build these plants in-house uh, and then we deploy them. And today we have three commercially operating. We have a fourth one that's about to, to come online here. And the goal is, and this comes back to, to the business model, is to have facilities close to where batteries are being generated. Uh, at the end of the day, one of the biggest costs associated with recycling lithium-ion batteries today is actually the logistics cost of moving them from wherever this material is generated to the point in which it can be processed into a usable product. Uh, and so we do that. We developed our own process uh, in order to process these batteries. At our spoke level, we call this a submerged shredding process. Basically, we're processing these battery materials all in the one line. We can process any state of charge, any form factor, any chemistry. We do it in a safe way whereby we're minimizing the amount of handling that our operators have to, to do with the batteries. Uh, and then at the end of it, what we're doing is we're producing three key products. We're producing uh, a low density plastic product, which goes on to uh, other secondary uses, uh, a metallic uh, foil product, which is predominantly copper, aluminum, steel, which goes on to further metal recovery uh, with, uh, through one of our partners. But the key thing that we're after through our spoke network is what we call black mass. And, and black mass, uh, putting it very simply, is just the anode and cathode materials from within the lithium-ion batteries. It's where your graphite, your nickel, cobalt, lithium, manganese, they all reside within what we call this black mass. 
Now that we've turned the batteries, which are you know, somewhat heavy, difficult to handle, into these intermediate materials, we now have a product that is safe and easy to transport. These materials are, are non-flammable. You, know, you can ship them in bulk. You can do all sorts of wonderful things that reduce the cost, coming back to the economics, of getting it to a refining facility. And that's our hub. So today we're, we're constructing a, a hub facility in Rochester. It's for 35,000 tons per year of this black mass material. It's the equivalent of material of about 90,000 electric vehicles, if you want to think about it in, in that terms. And what we do at the refinery, the hub, is that we then take that black mass material and we turn it back into the material. So coming back to you know, RJ and I's original background coming from the battery industry, the chemical industry, was what we're doing is we're producing materials that are fit for purpose to go back into the into the lithium-ion battery sector. And that's a major facility. It will be uh, one of the largest of, of its kind uh, in, in the world when it's complete. Uh, we're on track for, for starting commissioning next year. Uh, very, very exciting time for that. But most importantly for the industry, it's going to be the first large-scale demonstration, in, at least in the Western world, uh, of this ability to really close the loop for these lithium-ion battery materials. When I think about it, with these with these spokes, it's basically this giant uh, shredder with some with some you know hydrochemical treating to, to put it into this uh, into this usable form that this black mass that you then send out uh, to the hub that will that will treat that into a usable form. You almost think about it like a like an oil refinery, uh, maybe. And you, you mentioned though, uh, you know, this is the, will be the first of its kind. So far, you have some some test facilities, but you haven't uh, you know uh, scaled up to, to this massive full scale facility. So, you know, what are the the obstacles now between where you are today and reaching? That, that full-scale production. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at our spoke level, we are commercial today. We, we process thousands of tons of batteries uh, per year through our spoke network. Uh, and as you said, you know, we built a demonstration plant. Uh, we ran it for about 12 months, uh, processing black mass uh, in Canada through to the same materials that we'll be producing uh, in Rochester using the same process. Uh, and so we've gone through that. We've done a lot of work on the engineering development, we've secured offtake for all of our end products. We're only able to do that because of that early work that, that we did. So going forward, really the key thing that we're focused on now is really execution. Uh, we have uh, two great partners that are working with us uh, in the development of, of the hub in Rochester, being Hatch uh, and MassTech on, on the construction side. These are large global firms, you know, very, very capable uh, when it comes to both engineering and, and construction management. Uh, and so now we're working through with them, with our team. Uh, collectively, we're, we're building out the asset and uh, and very much looking forward to, to completing the project. Sure. So you talk about some of these engineering partnerships to, to actually construct the facility. Other partnerships also important to this business. You signed some deals with Glencore, LG Chem. You're working with Ultium Cells, which is the partnership with, with GM um, and LG Chem to, to make batteries. Can you talk about some of the partnerships you've made and how you're using that to help fund the business to, to actually build these facilities, right? It takes cash to make these things happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a capital intensive process. We've raised over a billion dollars. Uh, to date, uh, you know, since we went public about 12 months ago, uh, we've uh, partnered up with, with really three key partnerships. Uh, the, the first was with Coke Industries. Coke is a big international uh, industrial firm. The great thing about their, their partnership is that they are uh, increasing their, their investment involvement across the battery sector. 
which is helping us form strong commercial partnerships, but also they're very strong on the engineering uh, and operational readiness side of it. So they've been a great resource for us to be able to uh, to work with and help uh, help steer the project down the, the right path. Uh, but then going forward, you know, we did a, a, an investment uh, with uh, with LG. So LG uh, made an equity investment in, in Lifecycle uh, earlier this year. Uh, it was the first uh, recycling investment that they had made. They are today the largest producer of electric vehicle lithium-ion batteries in the world. Uh, and so a great cornerstone partnership as we work with them. As that part of that deal was really truly closing the loop in the sense that there's an agreement whereby we receive materials from the manufacturing of their lithium-ion batteries and we're providing them materials back from our hub facility uh, in Rochester. Uh, but then the latest was, was with Glencore uh, and Glencore today is one of the largest producers of nickel and cobalt uh, in the world. They have operating assets uh, all over the world that support uh, the existing lithium-ion battery uh, sector and, and what we saw with the partnership with Glencore uh, was more than just capital it was really an ability to, to partner with a, a significant uh, organization when it comes to ability to build out additional assets going into the future we're doing a, a lot of work with them on our next phase of growth uh, and what we're really focusing on uh, is trying to leverage their expertise they are truly experts when it comes to uh, producing finished metals that go into the lithium-ion battery sector uh, and they've been a great partner up until this point. I'm sure they will be uh, going forward. All right, so we've talked about you know your plan that the, the, you're moving forward with, with the Rochester hub, making some of these significant partnerships today. Company, uh, uh, you know, burning a, a fair amount of cash as you reach this kind of full scale. Where do you see the, the kind of path to reaching self-funding and maybe capital needs for the business to, to reach that point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're fully funded for the uh, everything we've announced today. So we have uh, seven spokes that we've announced uh, to date that are in various stages of operation and, and construction. Yeah, our facility in Rochester, uh, we're fully funded for that uh, all the way through commissioning uh, and startup there. So there's no real initial capital needs uh, for the business today. Uh, you know, so going forward, we're we're not looking at. Uh, uh, bringing on any additional equity or anything like that in the in the near term. Uh, what we're really focused on on is execution. In terms of, of going uh, and turning to profitability, we haven't put out specific guidance in, in terms of when that may be, uh, but it's very clear to, uh, to those who follow the business closely that the hub in Rochester will be a key catalyst uh, for the business. It's a great business unto itself. Uh, and, uh, and once that's complete, that will definitely be a significant step change for the organization. Certainly. So, so the hub in Rochester, obviously, is the, is the priority today. You mentioned that being a, a significant catalyst. But moving forward, you have uh, aims to build facilities in Norway, Germany. So uh, moving on from North America to, uh, to, to Europe, as you look at, at future hubs or maybe other hubs in, in North America, uh, how should we think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once again, we haven't uh, said anything specific in terms of where the next uh, major facilities will be. We are building out spokes today in, in Germany and, and Norway, uh, which are moving ahead well and, uh, and looking forward to having them complete. We are continuing to assess options to, to build out additional refining capacity 
uh, in the future. But uh, as we do that, we'll make sure that uh, we have a fully fledged business plan, which aligns with uh, both uh, what we're doing, but also where the market is and, and where our partners are uh, as part of that. So we'll come back to you with, uh, with more information when we're able to on that. So the last question I always like to, to leave folks when I, when I do these interviews is, okay, so for a potential investor, a market watcher who's, who's listened to this podcast, listened to this interview, what would be your kind of one or two, three bullet points you'd want them to leave this conversation with, want them to remember about Lifecycle going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know when it comes to evaluating recycling technologies and, and evaluating what people are doing, uh, I think it's important to consider both the, the technical aspects and, and the business model. Uh, for Lifecycle, the important parts uh, for our business model is that we have this diverse network of spoke facilities that allow us to improve the overall economics for processing lithium-ion batteries. We also, we haven't really touched on this very much uh, in this discussion, but we also have a very strong focus on how we do it. And so when you talk about what we're doing, we're processing lithium-ion batteries in a way where we're not generating any wastewater, we're not generating any meaningful air emissions. We're definitely not uh, uh, burning off plastics and, and organics as, as part of the, the process. It's a process that works in lockstep with the industry and, and why this industry exists uh, in the first place. Uh, and we'll continue to grow. We're going to have one of the, the major refining facilities for the first half of this decade. It's going to be online here in North America, uh, and it will be a very, very important part of the fabric of lithium-ion battery, not just recycling, but uh, uh, product development uh, uh, globally. Tim, thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Really excited to, to watch Lifecycle as it develops and as the lithium-ion battery industry as a whole uh, is set to grow in a significant way. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate your time. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.